This is Diaspora Dialogues podcast series. I'm Helen Walsh, DD's president. Among the many programs that we run, we hold public talks and onstage author interviews. In this next episode, which we recorded in Ottawa, I had the pleasure of sitting down for an onstage interview with Shyam Salvadori, the best-selling Canadian writer of several novels, including one for young adults, and the editor of many volumes of writing on the diasporic experience. It was a wide-ranging conversation about the nature of writing and publishing both in Canada and in his native Sri Lanka and what it means for writers to see themselves represented on the pages and stages of the country in which they live. My name is Helen Walsh, and I am the director of Talk Magazine and Diaspora Dialogues. We're here with Shyam Salvadori, who was born in 1965 to a Sinhalese mother and Tamil father. He was 19 when he left Sri Lanka in 1983 for Canada during the Sri Lankan Civil War that was to last 25 years. He's the author of four novels, three of which is set in Sri Lanka, and one set both there and in Canada as well as the editor of two anthologies about Sri Lankan and South Asian writing and numerous nonfiction articles. His first novel, Funny Boy, is a coming-of-age, non-biographical story of Argie, who negotiates his sexual identity alongside familiar class and societal tensions during a time of escalating violence between the Buddhist Sinhala majority and Hindu Tamil minority in the 1970s and early 80s. The book has been widely published and translated in many countries around the world and won many awards or been nominated for awards. Uh, Funny Boy has been revolutionary in introducing LBGTQ themes into English literature in Sri Lanka and the rest of Asia. Shyam is currently working with Oscar-nominated director Deepa Mehta on a film adaptation of the novel. His second novel, Cinnamon Gardens, is a fascinating tale set in 1920s Sri Lanka, and his third, Swimming in a Monsoon Sea, was written for young adults. His latest novel, Hungry Ghosts, continues to deepen his exploration of identity, societal pressures, and political tensions, while asking questions about karma, the inescapability of our pasts, and the fate of being an immigrant who feels either at home in two countries or in neither. So let's start there, Shyam. What is a hungry ghost? In, uh, in Buddhist philosophy, uh, uh, Buddhist myth, there's this idea that, uh, that if you're too greedy when you're uh, human, like when you're in your human life, you are born as a hungry ghost. And a hungry ghost is described as a uh, ghost that has an enormous belly but a mouth that's the size of the, of the eye of a needle. And this means that the ghosts can never fill, fill themselves up. And I like this metaphor a lot about um, you know, desire and the way desire works. But also the hungry ghost is a liminal character. He or she exists between two worlds. And they, they usually stay just outside the gate of the house in which they live. They can't actually come in for some reason. And I like that idea as well, the idea that uh, you're sort of caught between these two spaces or two worlds, uh, which is something I wanted to explore with uh, the Hungry Ghost novel, the novel, The Hungry Ghost, um, and just, um, I don't know, the idea of, of greed and, and what it leads to and desire more than greed, you know, and that our desire for stuff is so much greater than our ability to ever feed it. Um, and I, I think that's true, I mean, of everybody, actually, in some, except for a very few people. 
I want to ask you about the concept of home. In all of your all of your works, and in your nonfiction uh, journalism as well, the concept of home is so strong, and we see that both in questions about a home country and what that means, but also in the amazing personal details of what a home life is, uh, and the tensions that are in there both among family members, but among people of different classes who may live in uh, the same household. Talk to us about your fascination with the intricacies of home uh, and what that word means to you. I, I, don't, I think I, I'm a writer who writes about family, and why I write about family, I'm not quite sure. I mean, I think it's partly being from a South Asian background where one is socialized within the large um, family, um, within the extended family, so that becomes your social unit. And you're never expected as a South Asian person <coughs> to ever break out of that. Whereas we in the West have an idea that in order to achieve maturation, in order to come into yourself, you need to actually leave your family behind and find yourself, what, you know, and uh, leave your mother in behind. Uh, leaving your mother behind in particular is an important sort of step for a, for a man in terms of their growth as a, as a human being and as a, as a man. But in South Asian culture, that is not at all expected. It's sort of a travesty for a man to leave their mother behind. That, I think, shapes how I think about home. I think, I think I'm curiously the most comfortable when I'm in that extended family, even though I might disagree vehemently with a lot of their political views and social views. At the same time, when I'm in that situation, I find there's something in me that relaxes. So I think that's just conditioning. But I don't know why I write so much about it. I think it interests me. Um, it's the thing I want to do. I, I'm not quite sure why the work goes there, but it just seems to go there. And some part of me thinks, wouldn't it be right, nice if it didn't go there? But it never seems to not go there. And so I just accept it and explore it, and it's rich and fertile territory. <clears throat> but I think the idea of home or homeland is more about being an immigrant or being diasporic and, and that sense of having had to leave your home and having had to make a new home for yourself in another country. So in other words, you didn't really choose to come, but circumstances forced you to do that. This creates a kind of questioning, a, a sort of inner anguish about what home is. Well, I was going to say with Hungry Ghosts, yes. that is um, a much more directly, you know, the first three books were all set in Sri Lanka and Hungry and didn't deal with diasporic tensions except in the, in the obviously, the Civil War and in the end of, hung, or in the end of Funny Boy, right. they do leave to go to Canada. But in Hungry Ghosts, it's much more directly related to the experience of immigration and, and diaspora. Um, and there's a, a heaviness and a sadness to that book because of that, I think also because of the, the character of the grandmother yes. is such an overwhelming negative force. Yes. But what drew you to, draw, to write Hungry Ghosts and that experience of diaspora for the first time in that novel? Well, I think I, I think I wanted to do it. I think I, I, I felt after Cinnamon Gods, this is my second novel, that I, I want, this is the thing I wanted to do next. I wanted to write about Canada and the process of immigration. And I think it was, I think I was just trying to explore that, the issue of it. And I think I was, what I was interested in writing about was the immigrant experience of what it meant to be an immigrant in my context, in, in the modern context, in my context, or on the ongoing context, 
where you come to a, a, the West and you don't end up in a quaint little ethnic ghetto, but you end up in these uh, inner, what they call inner ring suburbs, and they're these kind of grim places of sort of no man's land, no man lands, where you have to somehow find a way to, to feel at home or make a home where there is really no main street and where this, the center is the mall, which is also an impersonal space. And how, in a way, uh, uh, human beings who have often come from villages or from uh, even a city where things are much more centered and much more uh, a sense of community, it tries to make a world for themselves here. So I was interested in that. I've never, ne never seen it in literature before, so I was interested in writing it and putting it down as literature and, and, and writing about Scarborough, the, the suburb I did, uh, my family did end up in, in a kind of detail that I thought was important and necessary to, I think we needed to move the immigrant story, immigration story forward, and I felt that I wanted to do that. Um, and I'm just interested in the idea of, you know, you carry your baggage with you from the old world, and that baggage shapes who you are in the new world. And I was interested in relating that to the sort of Buddhist stories where a character is born over and over again, but they take the karma of their um, previous lives along with them. So it came from that. It's interesting that Scarborough, since you this uh, book came out several years now ago, and, and stories of Scarborough as a place have become in the last two years with David Chiriandi's book and with Catherine Hernandez's book. It's come into a neighborhood that's come into its own, whereas it used to be a kind of absence of community. Yes, it's interesting. There's, this, um, there's also Catherine Leung. Uh, Leung oh, that's um, right. And I think that it's interesting that it's happened and I think my book sort of just slightly predates all that, yeah. which is interesting. So they don't talk about the Hungry Ghost in terms of this new Scarborough School of Literature because it just came a little before that. So yeah, I find that interesting. And certainly Funny Boy, Funny Boy in its uh, themes and the coming of age story and the exploration of what it means to be gay was also a very early text for literature that subsequently uh, exploded and your book really changed I think the dialogue around that in so many South Asian countries and it continues to be published and it continues to be taught and read and now uh, you're working on a adaptation we're not going to talk that that long about the adaptation but you're working on an adaptation of that for film mm -hmm. with with Deepa Mehta it's interesting a story that's so authentic and real as Funny Boy which is about so many things. I mean, that coming-of-age story is the coming-of-age story we all do with the, with the details different. Mm. Talk to us about that book a little bit and, and the adaptation of it for well, film. Yeah, I mean, it's such an old book for me now. It's almost yeah. 25 years old. To be honest, I don't quite understand why it still appeals to people. Um, I have not, I'm, it's not clear to me uh, it's, why It's this, a great book. <laughs> I, well, I don't know. I mean, yes, I suppose so, but I, you know, you just write the book. Uh, I'm, I, I don't really understand its, its longevity. I don't understand why generation after generation of young people read the book and identify with it. Uh, but I'm happy that they do. Yeah, I, I think I'm lucky that I have this book that, that actually has lasted this long. The film is kind of a, um, you know, like all adaptations, it can't take the whole book in. But because I have done the screenplay, I think it's faithful to the spirit of the book. And I think that that's the main thing and that I can say about it. Are you conscious, Shyam, of uh, responsibility in the presence you play in gay literature? 
so that you're anthologized a lot, you're referenced a lot, you're cited as examples for young writers who are, who are gay. Uh, is that, do you experience that as a responsibility in terms of the impact of your work on their decisions around their writing or their life story? I don't anymore. I haven't for a long time, actually, because I think that there's uh, more than enough stuff out there and that I think that gay rights has moved so far forward and it's pretty, pretty mainstream now that I don't feel like it's, uh, it's something that I need to take on. I mean, and it's, it's a wonderful thing because it frees you up as a writer to do whatever the hell you want. Mm -hmm. uh, you don't feel like you have to be the spokesperson. And I've never really thought about myself as being much of a spokesperson because as a writer, you spend so much time writing mm -hmm. and then the rest of your time you spend desperately trying to make money so that you can keep writing, that you don't actually have time, very much time, to go out there and be an activist and do a, you know, take a position like that. I, what I can do and, and do, especially in a Sri Lankan context, is keep being visible as a gay person, keep speaking as a gay person, keep uh, talking about it, talking about my relationship, my partnership, and really whenever I need to or call, be called upon is to speak about it. So I think that that's the most, I, that's, what I, that's what I do. And it seems sometimes that's not, I sometimes think, oh, I, I don't feel like I'm doing enough, but I'm primarily a writer. And, so let me ask you about, about Sri Lanka. You left in, uh, when you were 18 years old. Mm -hmm. In the last decade, you have gone back. You, not that you've gone back, you hadn't gone back mm -hmm. before that, but more robustly. Mm -hmm. You spend uh, a quarter of the year mm -hmm. in Sri Lanka. You, for two years, were the, uh, the festival director of a very important literary festival. Four years, yeah. Four years, mm -hmm. uh, called the Gaul Literary Festival. How has that experience changed the way, or how has that impacted the way you write about mm -hmm. Sri Lanka and the way you think about Sri Lanka? And did it have an impact on writing Hungry Ghosts set partly in Canada because you were so firmly entrenched in a permanent relationship again with Sri Lanka? No, it didn't, um, it didn't affect how I wrote Hungry Ghosts because it was pretty much written by then. But what happened when I started to go back was that the writing block that was preventing me from finishing The Hungry Ghost seemed to disappear, seemed to fall away, and, and I, was, I could feel the energy of writing come back to me. And I think that why I had been blocked, part of the reason I was blocked with The Hungry Ghost was that I hadn't gone to Sri Lanka for a while. So I've come to recognize that, again, something that's inexplicable to me, that it's somehow tied more to me, uh, or it's important for my well-being as a writer, uh, than it is for other writers who can go much less often, but also produce a lot of work, uh, important work. Other I mean, I'm talking about other diasporic writers. Mm -hmm. I, loved, I loved working in Sri Lanka because I think I left when I was 18, and so part of me never grew up in Sri Lanka. I was, even though I was growing up as, a, as an adult, when I went to Sri Lanka, part of me was still 18 years old. And going and being able to work there, and I actually spent on, you know, a couple of years there pretty much, coming back and forth a bit, allowed me to somehow grow up there, to work there. And I loved working there. I really loved uh, the, the team I worked with on the Gaul Literary Festival. And then I, I worked with this, some of the same members on this project I did on writing and reconciliation or right to reconcile. But I think the odd kind of impact of being there in Sri Lanka a lot and being sort of in the mud, so to speak, uh, of living there 
the odd impact of it is that it seems to have um, shut me down as a writer in terms of writing about Sri Lanka uh, in its modern context because I, the good thing about being diasporic is you come, you do your research, you do a little checking, you do a little something, and then off you go. And then that distance allows you to metaphorize the experience and the country and all that. But when you're so much in it and it's constantly changing all the time and you've, you're part of the feeling of the change of it, I find it a bit hard, so I'm, I'm sort of, it's like a kind of payoff. I've got um, closer to Sri Lanka, but it's harder now to write about it in a modern context. It's really interesting. And I don't, I think that that's not, that's pretty natural because I'm so much a part of it now. I'm, I'm, I can't even say I'm diasporic anymore. I don't think there's a word for people like me. Yeah. Because diasporic to me in, 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 in implies that somebody who's really living here but who goes back on a holiday and the angst of return and all, you know, there's a, I think part of di the word diaspora is the idea of the angst of return and how, how difficult it is to return and how impossible it is to return, especially if you're second generation. Mm -hmm. And for me, there is no sense of that. I don't have a sense of being, there's no angst for me. Uh, I mean, it feels like the most natural thing I get to the Sri Lankan airport, I turn on my Sri Lankan phone, I'm walking down, you know, off the, you know, down the corridor, you know, down the aisle uh, towards the passport thing, I'm calling the taxi, like, I'm just, like, writing a list, you know, of all the things I have to get for my apartment on the way, I know where I'm going to stop, and now some of the taxi drivers at the airport know me as well. You know, in that way that Sri Lankans are so inquisitive, they know everything about you. They somehow remember that where I live and all this kind of weird stuff. <laughs> where you want to have lunch? Yeah, not where I want to have lunch. But <laughs> so I think that this becomes, then I, so then like, what is home now? I can't figure out what home is. And I think the only thing I can say now about home is home is, home is when I'm sitting writing. And I think that that is the only thing that I could say truly is like a feeling of, because that seems to be a universal experience that spreads across Canada and here, uh, Canada and, and Sri Lanka is this idea of me at the computer writing. Um, and that is the only thing that ties it all together. What is your feeling about the role of literature or writers' festivals in bridging post, either in bridging conflict or in reconciliation? I'm going to ask you separately about, about the mentoring project, but overall, uh, the ability to, to suture divides through literature or through festivals like you have tried to do in Gaul. What, what do you think the role of uh, the arts are in that? Well, I can only speak about Sri Lanka. I mean, I don't mm -hmm. know. I think each context is different. Um, and I can only speak about my tenure as a, a curator. <clears throat> I inherited a festival that was sort of a bit too colonial for my liking, that there just weren't very many Sri Lankan authors in it and Sri Lankan authors in, other, in, in the other Sri Lankan languages other than English. And I was determined to change that and uh, to bring in, I was also determined to make the festival more political by having panels on trauma and reconciliation and accountability. Accountability was at that time such a poisonous word in Sri Lanka. Um, and I was determined to do these things and to have, as part of the festival, to have uh, human rights worker, um, you know, workers on stage talking and to, to do all that kind of stuff. So in that context, it was very clear what I had to do and what I was going to set out and do, and I did it. And I, I got a lot of pushback, but I just continued to do it. 
I think that the Gore Literary Festival, as it grew with under me, became a more inclusive space. It began to draw a lot more young people. I began to see people there who were not part of that Colombo elite who were coming to the festival. Because what I started to do was, <clears throat> I started to do a lot of free events, as much as our budget would allow us to do, and um, to make those the political events. Um, and so people were come flocking to see this kind of stuff and to be part of this buzz around, around freedom of expression. Because when I first did the festival, the first two years, the, the, uh, the previous regime, previous government was in power, and they were very oppressive when it came to freedom of speech. So this became a, a sort of place where people could come and hear things said that they wanted said publicly, and somehow the space allowed it to happen because it was an international space. So you would, and I would be very crafty. I would put, I remember one of those panels on, on that panel on accountability that I did had Chimamanda and Gozi Adichie mm -hmm. along with a very controversial human rights worker on it. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, like, it puts the government in a position because there's Chimamanda and Gozi Adichie, you know, also speaking about this, uh, uh, these ideas, and here's this woman. And I remember Chimamanda at one point, you know, that woman got a lot of hostile questions from, like, people were yelling at her from the audience and stuff. And at one point, Chimamanda turned to some guy and said, excuse me, you're a very rude man. <laughs> and, you know, so it was that kind of a, it was that kind of a, a festival. Um, and I just loved doing it. I mean, I loved programming like that. And I think that by allowing people to talk and, and express themselves, you create a, a space for reconciliation. So you have been a terrific support for young writers. Certainly with Diaspora Dialogues, you've mentored young writers with us over the, over the last 13 years. Many of those have gone on to publish their first, yes, and now exciting? their second it's book. It's so exciting. It's, it's terribly Feeling, exciting yeah. to see them. And then with the, this project you did trying to bridge issues, bridge the different communities in Sri Lanka, and, and really focused on uh, peace and conflict and reconciliation, talk to us a little bit about that. I felt that after a while that I wanted to do something, <clears throat> because I mean, there's this idea that the government was trying to have push an idea that uh, their idea of what happened with the civil war, which was a very sort of one-sided story, and I felt that there had to be some sort of pushback. And I thought, well, what can I do? And the only thing I can do is um, help young people with, develop creative work that would, prevent, that would present a kind of multiplicity of views on what happened during the war. And so I deliberately set out to do that, and I, I came up with this project called Right to Reconcile, and I managed to get funding for it uh, from the Norwegian Embassy and the American Center. It was just bringing together uh, 25 writers uh, who wanted to write on the issues of, of war, peace, reconciliation, memory, and trauma, and teaching them how to write, first of all, how to, the, the craft of creative writing, and then workshopping their work on online forums, and from that work we produced anthologies, and we've done, we did three anthologies, and the focus of the of the of the work was to look at was to try and complicate things so that you weren't that it wasn't polemical, but that people were were saying things in a complicated, uh, interesting way, and and that all sides were represented. So I, I felt it was really important, for example, <coughs> that we had the the voices of 
uh, of, of the Sinhalese soldiers in, 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 the sto in the stories mm. because they were part of the war and they are an important part of the war. And even as a Tamil person, uh, well, mixed person, I, sh I recognize that, that they also suffered in the war and they had trauma as well. And I was keen to try and get that, uh, that, that story in there. You know, I would feed the students stuff like I would feed them poems uh, translated from Sinhalese, you know, about this issue of, this, of the soldiers, uh, and especially the disabled soldiers and the, the grieving widows. And I showed a documentary on, on disabled soldiers. And I just, I think this, when you feed people this kind of stuff, it, it allows them to produce, you know, it, it gives, the work comes from that in a way. And the, my favorite stories were always the stories where a Sinhalese writer wrote about the Tamil experience and vice versa. I always really? loved that. I always felt that those were so amazing, you know. It's such difficult stuff, but so important yes. in, in yeah. reconciliation. Would you please read for us? Sure. Okay. So I'm going to read from, um, from The Hungry Ghosts. And <clears throat> by this point in the novel, the family has moved to um, Toronto and... Um, Shivan, the uh, narrator, knows that he's gay. He, he knows it, uh, but he does not know how to find community because you know this was before the internet. So you you know you just how do you find gay people? Like do you look them up in the in the in your phone book? What do you do? It was just like there's there's nothing out there, and he's living out in Scarborough. And as I said to you before, Scarborough is this kind of suburb in in the middle of nowhere. So what he's discovered by listening to students at the university he goes to, he's discovered that there's this place downtown called Queen West. And <clears throat> he goes down there and he finds the, the, the sort of life that he want, that he was interested in, which is this life of small shops and bookstores and cafes. So he starts to go all the time. That initial visit downtown released me from a fear I had not even been conscious of. A fear that white people, the natural inheritors of the life I craved, would share looks of dismay when I entered a cafe or store. I would be rebuffed with curt service, ignored by waiters and clerks. But everyone on that visit downtown had seemed indifferent to my presence. I began to haunt Queen West, going down on weekends, meandering up and down the strip, stopping to gaze at window displays. I spent hours in used bookstores reading the first chapters of books as the sun slanted in, a thousand dust motes whirling in, in the beams. If the book appealed to me, I would put it in a growing pile on some shelf or window ledge, then choose what I could afford at the end of my visit. I learned that for the price of a coffee, neighborhood cafes tolerated students spending entire mornings or afternoons reading at a table. The smell of old books in Canada was different from the raw rice odor of books in Sri Lanka. Back in Scarborough on a Sunday evening, I would often pick up one of my purchasers and sniff its greenish crushed leaf scent, a promise that my life would not be confined to this suburb that pleasure awaited me the following weekend too. I was in a used bookstore one afternoon looking through the fiction section when I saw, lying among the numerous pamphlets on a windowsill, a bright pink one, which asked in bold white letters, are you gay? Just the word gay out there in the open sent a frizzle of coldness through me. I glanced around to see if anybody had noticed the pamphlet or my attention to it, then slipped the pamphlet into the book I had been inspecting, paid for the novel and hurried out. When my family was asleep, 
and, and I could be sure they, would, they wouldn't barge into the basement to do laundry or get something from a cupboard in the unfinished section, I took the pamphlet from my bag. If you think you might be gay and need help coming ter to terms with your sexual orientation or just connecting with the community, this pamphlet is for you. I read the booklet over and over again and finally turned off the light and lay on my bed, hands behind my head. Here it was, the information I needed to search out a community in my city, and yet I could not do it, could not perform the simple task of calling the helpline listed at the end of the pamphlet. It was an action beyond me, like trying to rise and do a chore when delirious with fever. But one night, finally, I took out the pamphlet from beneath my mattress and studied the whole thing over as if I had never read it before. When I got to the telephone number at the bottom, I glanced at the clock. It was almost 11. No one would answer the phone, but still I would call from the extension in my basement. The very act of calling, even if only to get an answering machine, might give me the courage to try back tomorrow. The phone rang for a long time, and the more it rang, the calmer I became. Then, just when I felt I had collected the necessary courage to call again and was about to hang up, someone picked up the receiver. Hello, a man gasped. Hold on a sec. He put down the receiver, then inhaled and exhaled deeply to control his breath. It took all my will to stay on the line as if I was straining under something impossibly heavy. Finally came back on the phone and with a laugh that was both merry and easy said, sorry about that. I'd left the office and was halfway down the hall when the phone rang. That's, that's quite all right. Oh, are you from India? Uh, no, uh, no. Sorry, I shouldn't have asked. You don't have to tell me anything about yourself. No, no, it's really all right, you asked. It's just that I used to visit India quite a bit, particularly Goa, although now I go to Thailand on my holidays. After he told me this, I felt it was rude not to tell him I, not to tell him I was from Sri Lanka. How wonderful, I've always longed to visit there. You should go, I said, it's very pretty. He asked me about the Tamil Tiger's chance of getting an independent country and if I thought there would be a solution soon. I was taken aback at how much he knew about the country, even the names of the president and prime minister. Most Canadians I met thought Sri Lanka was part of the Caribbean. Are you a refugee, he asked, after I had answered his questions about the political situation. No, I came here with my family. We are immigrants. I live near this area called St. Jamestown, where there's a lot of Tamil refugees. I feel so sorry for them. Actually, I used to have a friend who was a Tamil from Jaffna, a man named Cheran Mutuswami. His family is from the village of Point Pedro. Do you by any chance know him? Um, um, no, I, I don't, unfortunately. He must have read my mind because he laughed. Of course, why should you know him? There are millions of Sri Lankans. By now, I trusted him. He told me he was a social worker with troubled youth, and soon I found myself telling him I went to York University and what I was studying there. All this time, he had not mentioned a word about my reason for calling. Finally, he said in a business-like tone, so what can I help you with? After my silence became prolonged, he added, please take your time telling me. I, I found this pamphlet, your pamphlet in a bookstore and I read it and I fell silent again. And you're gay and you've never said this to anyone before, right? He said gently. Yes, yes, I have never said this to anyone, and yes, I am gay. It felt so strange, those words coming out of my mouth, and the next moment I was crying. 
As I sobbed, he talked to me in a soothing tone about how it was all right to be gay and how one could find a lot of happiness in coming out, a lot of support, that I did not need to be lonely anymore, that he knew exactly what I was feeling because he had spent his teens in a small town in the 1960s and knew as well as anyone what it was to feel different and alone. His voice with its depth and quiet authority calmed me. When I was no longer sniffling, he said, Look, it, it's sort of late and I must get home. Would you like to meet in person? Yes, yes, I would like that a lot. He gave me directions to a cafe at Bloen's Spadina. By the way, my name is Ronald and you don't have to tell me your name. Some people feel more comfortable making up a name. No, I replied, I want to, I really do. It's Shivan. Well, Shivan, I'll see you in a couple of days. Once I had put the phone down, I lay on my bed, limbs heavy with fatigue. So much of your work, Shyam, has been around breaking silences. So we thank you for being with us here today and breaking silence on these important topics and books. Thank you for coming. We hope you enjoyed this program. Please consider subscribing on your favorite podcast provider. If you're an emerging writer interested in receiving our open calls for submissions or invites to our events, please join our DD newsletter by emailing us at info at diasporadialogues.com with subscribe in the subject line. Thanks so much for listening.